Welcome to Careers in Your Ears, a careers podcast for PhD students and research staff at King's College London. I'm Vicky Tipton, one of the careers consultants supporting researchers here at King's. I'm joined today by Dr. Jason Myers, a data scientist at Faculty AI and a doctoral graduate in mathematics from the KCL doctoral training programme, CANES, which stands for Cross-Disciplinary Approach to Non-Equilibrium Systems. Welcome, Jason, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks. Thanks, Vicky. I'm going to just dive straight into my first question, which is about your current role. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what your current role as a data scientist is all about with faculty, please. Sure, yeah. So the current role, sort of roughly for me, at least at the level I'm at, roughly breaks down into sort of wearing three hats in general on on a sort of average month, not even on an average day, because that would be a bit too short term. Uh, So the average month would kind of be obviously largely coding, machine learning related. Uh, and that includes, you know, th- that may include things like doing research into new ideas or trying to find particular solutions. And that usually involves Google most of the time. Uh, so that's that's the sort of biggest hat one wears. Um, but then there are lots of non-coding hats that I would be doing. So for instance, I help with hiring. Uh, so I've been, I'm at the initial stage of pipelines for, for interviewing people. Uh, so that's something that takes up quite a bit of time at the moment because faculty is is hiring. Um, I also get involved with things like mentorship. So we have this faculty uh, fellowship, which is this training program for STEM students to become to train from being PhDs and postdocs to to data scientists. And so I, I would help mentor on that program. And then to a lesser extent, mainly because of of sort of my seniority, to a lesser extent, I also can be helped. Uh, I can help with things like business development. So that would be a new business idea and just looking and seeing what techniques may be viable or if the project looks like something we can do, that type of thing. Although, as I say, to a much lesser extent, given the it's it's more the the more senior you get, the more you do that kind of thing. OK, that's really interesting that the, the title data scientist doesn't by any means uh, mean that you're being a data scientist for 100 percent of the time. Yeah, I think that that's pretty accurate. It's yeah, you're you're being a data scientist. Yeah, probably the more junior you are, the more data science you're doing. Funny enough, I think the more senior you get, the more you've got other stuff to do, other stuff on your plate. Okay, so how much of your time do you spend at the moment on the the coding and the machine learning? Would you say? Probably close to eighty plus percent. So most of right. my day, it's still the biggest hat by a long way. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to come back. I've got a question later on to ask you from a PhD student about the coding skills, because we, we are often asked about the level of coding skills that you, you need um, to go into industry. But we'll come back to that point. I'd like to back up a bit, um, if that's okay, and find out what led you to do a PhD in maths. So first, I must uh, clear the air on that, which is I did a PhD in maths, which is absolutely true. But uh, one of my supervisors was in physics. So I did a theoretical physics degree in the math department. And I don't want my supervisors to hear this podcast and think that I'm trying to, to steal some sort of limelight or to distance myself from these third supervisors. So it was a okay. mathy physics. It was a, a very mathy type of physics in the math department. OK, for the record, if your supervisor is listening, that that's my error. <laughs> No, it's it, Joe's really. He, he'll understand. He'll understand. But uh, just so he knows, I, I I do recognize that it was physics um, in the math department. But yeah, so back to the question. Um, 
yeah, I, I guess I always liked maths and physics at school. Uh, when I was 16, we all had to tell, you know, what we wanted to be when we grew up, essentially. And I didn't really have a great answer other than I want to study maths at university. And that was pretty much all I got to. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. Still don't, to be honest. Um, and I would love to say it was sort of a grand plan that sort of led me to this PhD. But it was probably... I enjoyed at every step in my career, I sort of enjoyed that step and I just wanted to sort of take the next step forward. And when I joined Keynes, I fully intended to become an academic. That that was probably the the purpose, sort of walking in the door on, on day one. So it, it again wasn't a sort of grand plan, but more in small steps, ended up at the PhD and, and then doing it. Great. And what, what do you think you've taken from the PhD? What are your sort of big gains? So, I mean, there's the obvious one, things like I can now read mathematical papers, which does actually help me in my day-to-day -day work. You know, I understand statistics, probability distributions, et cetera, which as a data scientist is is actually useful. Um, uh, but then there's all the other stuff. It's probably well known by now, and I think most PhDs would have heard this and, and are aware of it, which is a little bit of this dog with a bone about a problem. Uh, PhDs are quite self-motivated and, and sort of a have a perseverance when faced with a problem that you may not find elsewhere. It's not true in always, but there's a particular perseverance that comes with having done a PhD, which I find useful and, and something you can see. Uh, and also an ability to manage unstructured situations and open-ended questions is quite useful. So you get a lot of that in industry and just kind of being thrown into the deep end is not necessarily something completely alien. You know, something you don't know is not a scary prospect uh, because that's pretty much what the PhD was at least my experience with PhDs. Sure. So both quite kind of technical skills on the on the math sides, but also with that kind of quite a strong attribute of persistence. Yeah, I think that's that's probably a fair summary, especially because you know doing data science with the particular PhD I did, most of my day-to-day -day research isn't applicable to you know the 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 work I do on a day-to-day -day basis, but it's those underlying skills that I'm taking away again, the maths and then this sort of mm -hmm perseverance is personality trait that you learn or at least it's not a personality trait you learn but probably a a feeling you get used to feeling during your PhD is yeah. maybe a way to phrase it yeah that is a nice way to phrase it so so you you pointed out that you started the PhD on day one with the intention of becoming an academic so that was your career focus if you like at the very beginning so tell us a little bit if you don't mind about the journey that led you to decide to leave academia? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's always, it's interesting because I think everyone has very, I think everyone sees the situation exactly the same way and comes to different conclusions. And so the well-known two-body problem, I'm not sure if other fields call it the two-body problem, but certainly in mine we do, which is a play on, on, on sort of a concept of, of Newtonian physics. But basically, the problem is if you have a partner and you want to do a postdoc, where geographically in the world are you going to end up? And I'm I'm married and I've had a long term partner. So there was always this two body issue to solve, which is which country are we going to be in? Um, and obviously, this this uncertainty is largely driven by large competition and, and heavy competition for very limited positions within, again, at least within my field. But I think that's true largely in academia. Uh, there's also the financial uncertainty of being an academic um, and, and that's you know, getting the full time placement. There's all of that. So, again, if you want to start a family life, it, it is difficult. Um, and then, I, you know, you take a look around and I, I obviously work closely with my supervisors and I saw a lot of their time was spent on me and other teaching and other admin. 
Um, and it almost felt as if research sometimes could only really take place in their spare time and not wasn't their primary role, unless they were lucky enough to get certain grants that allowed them to free up that teaching and, and other responsibility. Um, so there's, and then on top of all of that, there is still quite a large pressure to keep publishing, uh, which sort of even in the then enjoyment of, of exploring adds a bit of a stressful edge to it. And so from the, my from my end, I don't think that what I've said there, anyone would not have observed for themselves. I don't think any mm -hmm. of that is, is an unknown issue within academia. Mm -hmm. And then I think at the end of the day, for me, it comes down to how much do you really love the research to make those costs worth the, the benefit of being able to do what you love. And ultimately, for me, in a personal way, I decided that the research wasn't quite, I didn't love it enough to overcome those difficulties. For, as I said, that's a very personal decision. And, and I can see others, and you could look around, others who love the research so much that they were willing to pay, you know, they were willing to, to, to give up other things. Obviously, I'm giving up other things by leaving academia, but uh, I think for me, that's what led me to decide not to become an academic. Okay, that that's that's really interesting that you you know those those observations that you share, but how those work in your own situation and and being able to interpret that for yourself is a really important point, isn't it? Because there are some things that are fairly objectively statable, but there are things that are sort of important for you personally that you need yeah. to decide around those. I think that's a really helpful kind of framework actually for people to look at it with. I mean, I think for me, uh, if I look at my supervisors, I can't imagine any of them giving up what they've got. They love mm -hmm. the work that they're doing. And I think these costs, again, they would have told me about these, you know, they could, they would, some of these were brought up by my supervisors. Um, but for them, it's worth it. And that's absolutely a fair shout, if you know what I mean. That's, that's a very personal decision. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose following on from that, I really want to ask you this question about um, coding, and I will come to that. But since you started to talk about why you um, sort of left academia, I thought I'd just come to, to that point where you actually were transitioning from academia into something else, because you've talked to us before very kindly in a blog post that you wrote about the rejection that you faced when entering the non-academic job market. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that today um, and what got you through. Yeah, um, this is gonna, this, this probably will bring us a bit full circle at least with some of the other statements I made. Um, yeah, it's something uh, that, that I do feel quite strongly about. And it's, it's not something, there's for some reason, especially PhDs in STEM, get told that they're smart, or at least you go to a party and people are like, oh, you're doing a PhD in some STEM subject, you must be very, very smart. And somehow, as much as you don't want to let it sink in, it does on some level sink in. And so there is a bias to assume it's easy to get a job, or at least won't mm -hmm. be that difficult for you. And it's just not true. Uh, unfortunately, it, it is difficult. And everyone I spoke to, other than a very select few, went through the same trouble. It, it all took some time to actually to get that job, uh, to, to get to find a position mm. outside of academia and took a few tries and a lot of rejection. Uh, and it's mm. not something I guess you get used to if you've gone through academia and you've been told you're smart your whole life, you've got to then face levels of rejection, which is a new and difficult experience to face. Uh, again, I can only speak from the perspective of PhD in STEM. I'm, I'm sure I, I know rejection is difficult for everyone to face, but uh, from my perspective, it is a difficulty that, that we would face. And yeah, as I say, you can tell yourself that only once you experience it, can you truly understand that feeling? And I guess the point is, if you're struggling, don't worry. It's not just you is probably the main message I would say is just that it, 
it is most people um, who who are struggling. Don't don't feel like you're lesser or, or it's it's unique and that you haven't done enough. It's hard. Um, and so for me personally, perseverance, which was the PhD characteristic I mentioned, probably got me through. And then lucky enough to have support of of family and friends. Are you there, Jason? Yeah, sorry, I think I uh, broke up a bit there. That was my, I think it's my Wi-Fi being a bit dodgy. No worries. Um, I, d I don't know how so far you got through that. <laughs> I got to the bit where you said you kind of were normalising it and saying, don't worry about, it's, okay. you know, this happens to everybody, this kind of thing. And was that the, the main point that you had made or did you add something on then? Basically, the thing that got me through was uh, the perseverance from the PhD and then lucky that I had close friends, family, so, yeah, family support, friend support that just were like, it's fine, you'll get through it, it's all normal, it's all normal. So yeah, uh, I was lucky yeah. enough. That, that's, that's great. And I suppose from the perspective of hindsight, if you were, you know, speaking to, well, let's imagine, you know, our audience is going to be uh, PhD students and and possibly you know postdocs as well who might be thinking about leaving academia and I just wonder you know what advice would you give to people currently in that position to prepare um, for the situation that you encountered that feeling that you so brilliantly articulated about being told that you're smart all that all that time and it's sinking in and then facing rejection you know on, in the labor market how, how can you what advice can you give to current PhDs and postdocs to prepare for that I mean to prepare for that I, I don't have a huge amount in that sense as to how to prepare for that feeling of rejection I think it's just something you will inevitably experience and just trust that it's not unique but I can give some advice in terms of preparing for the job market maybe is is sort of that would be really helpful. something positive yeah um which is and it's an interesting discussion i had with a colleague of mine recently and we were talking about exactly the scenario where a uh, phd or postdoc is trying to enter the market and the one thing that we've realized you know having into the market is the concept of signaling your interest and so basically as someone who's interviewing people some of the time what i'm actually looking for is some signal that they have thought about and actually care about this industry beyond their academic role, that this is something that they want to be doing, because obviously they're going to be, they're going to need to learn a lot on the job. That's, that's mm -hmm. clear. And, and anyone hiring you outside of a PhD would assume you're going to have to learn a lot on the job. And so it's not enough to say, I have a PhD, I can learn quickly, which is the thing we all say to ourselves, but you also have to show that you're trying to move in that direction. Uh, so this concept of signaling. So that's things like in my field, at the very least, Things like, obviously, if you just watch some YouTube videos, that's useful, so you can learn some of the language. But, you know, actually taking online courses is a really good signal. Solving Kaggle problems, which is a particular online data science competition website, that's really useful. Having a very active GitHub account, all of these just show that you put time and effort into to going that next step. Um, and, and I guess the best way to think about it is think about the fact that you have this PhD which shows something about yourself, but you have to now show the desire that you want that next step. Mm -hmm. And you need to show the interviewer or the person you're, you're trying, the, the, the role you're trying to get, that you are keen on that next step in a very real way. Uh, so take some time either during, which is difficult, or after the PhD, more likely, uh, to, to, you know, take two or three months to just learn some of the basic language and try and signal some of this intention of yours. Um, it's, yeah. That's great. Thank you. So so very much paying an interest in the kind of 
the coding side of things and showing that you're interested in that? It's, yeah, so it's coding and machine learning. It doesn't have to be just the coding. I mean, a lot of people may take you with the machine learning knowledge and expect you to learn to code better later. Uh, mm-hmm. So it can it can kind of go either way. It depends on the company that you're that you're yeah. interested in. But it's just whichever thing you're interested in and whatever job you're applying to, just show that you've rely on more than the fact that you are, say, mathsy in whatever sense that means, given your STEM PhD, uh, and that you that yeah that you're more than mathsy and more that you can learn quickly. You, you need to show mm-hmm. that you've started learning. Uh, it yeah. is kind of the idea. Okay, yeah. and so popping those profiles from GitHub, etc., on your CV, so it's out there and you can talk yeah, about it. the fact that you know github exists is, yeah. for instance, that you can use it and that you have a profile but be yeah. sure there's something on there i mean i've clicked on people's github profiles and found nothing there so, so do be a little careful when you're doing your signaling that if someone does follow up there's there's something there as opposed to it's literally just on your cv is the only uh, Great. advice i can give in case anyone listening isn't familiar with um, GitHub, GitHub, excuse me, or um, Kaggle, we'll we'll put those in the episode notes um, for this session so people can click through and and have a look. And they're open profiles, aren't they? So you could look at other people's profiles on there. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Great, that's wonderful. Now let's get to this question um, that a PhD student sent to me. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read out what they they asked um, to put to you. And this is the question. So what coding skills do you actually need to have for industry? I've heard a data scientist use the phrase academia code, suggesting it needed to be changed before production. How can a PhD measure the standard of their coding? And how can we improve our coding to industry standards without being an industry? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a tough one and something I still am learning and struggling with you know, today, literally in my current project, is something we, we're going to quite a high standard of coding and I'm still getting my head around exactly the best way to do this thing. So I think uh, it, uh, it's a process. But I think it comes down to the fact that in academia, you seldom need to hand over your code to anyone other than colleagues or future students. Mm-hmm. So someone you're going to have some contact with or potential contact with or can contact you in the future, um, which you know, usually means you can explain your code, whereas production implies complete strangers picking up your code. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it becomes... You, you need to almost learn or stick to an industry standard because that is the way people, it's kind of like learning grammar rules. You could you could learn English with all the words, but if you don't understand the grammar, no one else could pick up that book you've written and understand it. So that's, it's, it's just this sort of agreed upon uniformity that means a stranger can pick it up and understand it. And I think that's fundamentally what academics don't ever need to really worry about to a large extent, because normally someone would just email you with questions on your code because it's all publicly there and available and you have you know, would be happy to help them. So I think that's probably where the difference comes. Um, and so I think to help get around these issues, start thinking about what you would need to make your code look like to be understandable to yourself even in one year, five years, 10 years from now. And more than that, if someone else were not able to send you an email, if you left the field or, or were unavailable, could they handle your code base? That's probably a good start. And obviously, to get down that route, you go down sort of these um, industry standards. Uh, so learning about things like industry coding standards, like in Python, it's called PEP8. Um, things like having a linter in your coding editor, which will automatically ensure that your code formats in a way that is recognizable. So it has the correct spaces and line lengths and things like that, which just when you're used to reading code, you're automatically looking for. And if you don't do it, it automatically looks rough, um, which mm-hmm. is just something you learn. Um, 
the the structure of your code is important. Again, I'm going to talk mainly about Python because it's the one I know best. Mm-hmm. But things like making use of functions and classes in an appropriate way. So people who learn about classes then tend to write only in classes, which is also too much information. You need to be a bit careful about how you go about that. Um, documenting your code, such a simple thing, but basically just putting in good documentation, seeing how Numpy or Pandas or whatever does it would be a good start. Uh, just how do they document their code and how can you make it look like that? Um, I was once told, and this is for Python in particular, that really good code doesn't usually need inline comments. Normally the code itself is written in such a way that it's perfectly clear what it's doing. And that includes structure, it includes things like naming your functions correctly and appropriately to describe what they're doing, such that you can read it like a like a book. So all you would need is your documentation, your um, your doc strings at the start of your functions and classes, and then literally your code should read as normal, um, and it should be obvious what it's doing. Um, so all of that is useful. If you want to start working on it, you can try as a you know as, a, as an academic submitting. Um, merge requests, which is a way of of contributing to open source material. Uh, You can try and contribute to standard libraries if you see certain ways that may be improved. And if your code isn't of the right standard, it will be rejected because it is obviously important that everything is is that uniform standard. So that may be start looking at uh, uh, contributing to open source packages. Um, Obviously, lectures, YouTube lectures. I was literally this week, uh, as I said, I'm struggling with my current project on this. So literally this week was watching a good YouTube video on uh, by a guy called Raymond Hettiger on Python uh, and just explaining how the best way to structure it and solve problems in it. So sorry, there was a lot. I hope all of that was clear. It was really clear. I mean, to a person who's only ever done a little bit of HTML, (laughs) you know, it was it was very clear to me. And I know that people listening uh, if they were able to ask questions, um, would would perhaps be coming up with, you know, more questions about how they could apply that in their work. But I think the way I've understood what you're saying is it's starting to think about and identify what those industry standards might be for the kind of coding you're using in academia. And that that really nice piece of advice about whether someone else could pick it up and work with it. So almost applying those standards to your current work and then testing it out somehow by putting it into a public domain, one of these libraries, for example, to see whether it gets accepted. Yeah, if you can do that, then then your code is probably of decent enough quality. Yeah, that's uh, but really I think decent enough. It would be very tough to do that. <laughs> so it would be a good measure. <laughs> it would be. OK, so, yeah, so it is tough. And I think reassuring as well that you're I'm not sure, a year or two into this role? About a year and a half, yeah. year and a half, and still it's a case of pushing that learning around Python. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a continual process, I think. And also new versions of Python are coming out regularly. There's a newest version of Python 3.10 with a whole bunch of new features that are coming out soon. It's, it's, a, it's in a beta version, I think, right now. But um, it's, it's, yeah, and then you kind of have to relearn the best way to do things because there's suddenly better ways of doing stuff. Yeah, when we've talked when we've talked to people about data science before, that's a message that we get regularly that things change so much that sometimes what you might be working on in your PhD, you know, then is will be updated by the time you you get to an industry job or to your next job, which requires you to do that. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so thanks so much for that really thorough answer. That was great. So my final question um, 
for you today. Um, so we know that academia faces challenges in terms of diversity. And we've discussed before on this podcast the fact that the world of technology um, faces challenges in terms of technology, particularly women and people of colour being represented. And uh, we were wondering, you know, what have you seen perhaps in industry or academia that you think might have helped with these challenges and what could we be doing um, more of? Uh, it, it's such a tough one to answer, especially uh, from the perspective of myself being a, a white cis male. So obviously I am the majority of the majority in this sort of group. And so to explain stuff is is complicated because mm. I don't necessarily experience what everyone else is experiencing. But I can, from the perspective of friends of mine who are female or, and or black, have noted that they do feel more confident if they can see their own organization with greater diversity. So literally yeah, seeing that. Um, mm. Although in my head, it also creates a bit of a chicken and egg situation in the way that I know that there is this idea that's sort of pervasive through still today, through society, that um, sort of STEM is best left to white men. Um, and this has a corrosive effect on younger people mm. who, who see that. And then it, it gets baked in at a young age, which you can see, I know there are studies that show these effects. Um, and so you kind of want to both allow the next generation of people to make those decisions freely because you don't want to force anybody to do anything, but you want to make them without that corrosive influence as mm. they're growing up um, to be the role models for the next generation. But you need to give those youth role models today. So it's a, it's a, it's a complicated question that I don't have great answers to and I'll probably have to leave others to, to answer uh, in terms of what one does there. But there is something there and yeah, you need to remove that, that negativity from people growing up and they need to be able to see that it's fine. And so to sort of not too far dodge the question, um, I think for those listeners who do fall into what is considered the minority from a STEM perspective, should know they're probably just being there and doing what they're doing. They are those role models today. Mm. And so that that's fantastic. And for listeners who are more like myself, who fall into what is the majority of STEM, I guess we need to just on the small scale, do small things better. So be aware of the bias and privilege that does exist uh, and where possible negate it. So things like if you're standing in a group of male colleagues and there's one female colleague there, be aware that she may be feeling a little uncomfortable but that doesn't mean she is uncomfortable and certainly doesn't mean that she needs protecting or, or any sort of yeah. um, uh, expl explanation or anything. It's just more that when it's your turn to speak, make sure that you're very equal and, and engage equally mm -hmm. with everyone. Don't, don't let that bias overcome you. Uh, if a black colleague mentions that they're uncomfortable with how someone said something, obviously take it seriously. But it's, it's again, not to necessarily attempt to fix or protect. It's to have that conversation with them mm -hmm. in an open way ask them mm -hmm. if they want help back up or you can be there for them in any way. And if they say no, they want to leave it, then leave it. It's not your place mm -hmm. to fight their battle. That's not the point. And they have uh, you should and we should be involved, but certainly not against the wishes of people who it may affect their careers or their standing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've got to then find a completely different way to broach that topic such that you don't break that trust and leave that relationship sort of intact. Um, I'm happy, obviously, to be contradicted on anything I've just said in any of that because it's super complex. Um, and I'm certainly trying to learn always and, and be better in myself because it's it is a difficult situation question. It, yeah, it is. A, yeah, I mean, thank you for you know your honesty in in answering that from from what you're observing. 
Um, and it's, you know, it sounds like from your perspective, there's work to be done, which is my perspective too. Um, and that we've all got a responsibility to sort of uh, think about this, learn and and think about how we can change that, that those corrosive effects, as you've kind of described them there kind of endemic as we pass them down to new generations. So how do we change that? Thanks very much for, for taking the time um, to speak with us today, Jason. It's been great to hear from you and to hear about your journey from uh, the PhD to data scientist. And, you know, whatever ne whatever is next for you, we wish, wish you the best of luck. Um, and particularly right now, good luck with the current project that you're working on and <laughs> the Python coding. Thank you. Thanks. So if you are listening to us and you've got any particular ideas about who you'd like us to interview or specific questions that you'd like us to ask people, then please, please do get in touch with us. The best way to do that is to tweet at KCL Do One Thing or email careers at kcl.ac.uk. Thank you for listening to this episode of Careers in Your Ears.